today as I was um, walking up the hill and made the corner and right, right before you get to the to that interview room five there's all those wonderful little plants in there and um, I was I'd, I'd done my own meditation in the morning and those plants were so alive to me they were just like how could I not always see them as that alive? Many of you have had that experience already on the retreat, right? I see a lot of nodding heads. So, yeah, it's the, as, as we drop in, one of the things that happens uh, as uh, a natural, we don't have to try or anything, is that we're, we start to be able to actually be awake to the beauty of, of nature. We see how alive nature is. And it's, it, you can walk out of here after that early morning sit and it's like you've not seen nature before. It's just so fresh and so immediate and just so alive. And part of that, uh, uh, that kind of uh, capacity is coming because we are collecting and unifying the mind. We're getting more concentrated. Another reason that it arises is that we are, we are letting loose of our distractions in a way that there's less, there less or fewer filters between us and the immediacy of experience. And this is one of the uh, great benefits that sometimes isn't mentioned in terms of uh, having a practice, including a really truly dedicated home practice, is that we have more access to the immediacy of experience. We also have more access to things like equanimity and so forth, but that's not my focus tonight. So this, uh, uh, this unfiltered access to uh, the immediacy of experience. One way that can be understood is, and you'll hear me repeat this phrase later this evening, is that we're seeing with the, the eyes of the Dhamma or seeing with Dhamma eyes reality. It's really a wholesome experience, but it's also easy to, not, to not notice that that's actually occurring. So you can have moments on the retreat that are really wholesome moments and you're glad about them now and you're, oh, this, it feels peaceful or whatever you're feeling, but you don't necessarily notice. And that's why this word recognition, which I have used repeatedly, is an important word that you recognize what's true. That the mindfulness, the role of the mindfulness is that it allows us not just to register, but to recognize. We are mindful of what's arising, but we're also capable of recognizing whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful, suffering or not suffering. So... I stress this over and over again, as I have done for the last couple of years, because um, maybe it's not fully appreciated that, that it's not just being mindful and going, okay, it's, it's like this. It's like recognizing the qualities. This, this is related to this idea of investigation. And we'll be doing much more starting tomorrow. We're going to invite more investigation, you to utilize more investigation, because in this path of the Satipatthana, as we get more and more into the Four Noble Truths and that whole fourth foundation of mindfulness, then there's more and more investigation. That's what that fourth establishment of, of mindfulness is. Or I was thinking uh, this afternoon, reflecting on the talk, and so four foundations of mindfulness or the, the four means of establishing mindfulness. Because uh, in, the, in the Pali, it's much more verb than noun. We, we, in English, we make things nouns in one form or another. But it's more like establishing mindfulness. It's, a, it's an activity. It's a practice. It's not just, um, it's, it's not just a, um, a kind of jaron or something like that it's it's really you know, we're at establishing actively it's a practice it's a it's a becoming it's bhavana in that way the other thing that um, happens uh, as, as we get more and more um, uh, dropped in and this is much more common on 
long retreats of a month or six weeks or two months or three months is that um, from uh, moving from seeing that nature is alive or we're alive to nature, we can even reach this point where we and nature really become one the way it is with animals. And again, this is a wondrous experience. I can remember on many a retreat uh, feeling that, oh, I am nature, that I'm not separate. And I could walk, uh, there's this, at IMS, there's this big pond called Gaston Pond, and I could do the loop around uh, the pond coming back to the retreat center and where nature was manifesting in all kinds of creatures. They didn't run, they didn't do anything. They did not in any way object to my presence. And I could feel nature. I could feel it as an energetic experience. And uh, it feels so, uh, one feels so honored, so uh, grateful to get to feel that kind of harmony with nature and being one with, because our minds and uh, our discursive minds and of course our, our modern lifestyles uh, lead to a, a different kind of experience so often. So tonight we are going to uh, we're going to uh, pick up the uh, foundation of, the, of mindfulness that that we haven't yet talked about. We'll be doing that, and it's called Vedna, and it's about the feeling tone of experience, and the feeling tone of experience uh, uh, is a big factor in how we experience the moment and whether we uh, fall into uh, uh, clinging and suffering or we don't. So that's what we're going to be exploring. But I want to start with uh, sharing a cartoon with you that uh, it's unfortunate that Matthew didn't have this cartoon because he would do so much better job of, of he, he's just got the right attitude. His humor is perfect for it. So you're just going to have to see me channeling Matthew as best I'm able. <laughs> and the title of it is A Toaster Does Dharma Reflection. And it's four frames, like four acts in a play. And in the first one, the, there's, a, there's, there's a bagel in the toaster. There's two bagel, sides of the bagel in the toaster, and it's on. And the toaster is reflecting its first reflection. When I toast the bagel, does it suffer? <laughs> and then in the second frame, I must toast to live, but does that excuse me? <laughs> and then in the third frame, there's no commentary. It's just that the, the bagel's getting burnt. And then in the fourth frame, the toaster goes, damn, I burned it again. <laughs> so uh, the, to me, the Dharma reflection for us in this is that we want to be careful not to be so busy speculating in our own toaster reflections about what's suffering and not suffering that we actually miss the experience and cause suffering to ourselves while we're so busy reflecting on what is suffering. So little little uh, context setting here. Vedna is the second of these four foundations of mindfulness or four establishments of mindfulness or four means of establishing mindfulness. And it is called the feeling tone. And it is the slight, slight flavoring that comes with every moment. The flavoring can be positive to the mind. I'll say the mind-body. Uh, it can be uh, a positive to the mind-body that is pleasant, or it can be unpleasant, or it can be extremely unpleasant, or extremely pleasant, or anywhere in between. And those are the ones that we most often notice is when it's if, if it's pleasant, if it's strong enough pleasant that we like it, or if it's strongly enough unpleasant that it draws our attention and we don't like it. And then the third, uh, the Vedna, is that of, of neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It gets shorthanded often to uh, 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 neutral, but I don't actually like that word very much. I don't, I don't think that captures 
some subtlety here that's quite an important subtlety as you mature in your practice. So I, I stick with the neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And so I may shorten it to neither, but if I say neither, I mean neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And I would have you learn it that way. That's the way I learned it, and that's the way when I then assisted the Venerable Analio in teaching the Satipatthana, that's the way he did it. So. so this flavoring of the moment is, creates this sensation. It's, it's a sensation that's, that, are, again, is in the body, mind, and whatever way that you want to view that. And it is one of the factors that most affects how we interpret this moment's experience. So this, this moment's experience could actually be fairly wholesome, but because it's unpleasant, we go, ah, we have a bad attitude, we have some aversion to this unpleasant moment. But in fact, if we stopped and thought about it, we might go, you know, this is unpleasant. Being with my difficult sibling and having to listen to this and not defend myself is really unpleasant. But I'm actually being who I would wish to be in this moment. Start to see that distinction. That the, the unpleasant experience of something doesn't mean that it's unwholesome or doesn't even mean in our sensory level that we wouldn't choose it based on our values. So the value of understanding Vedana is that we see that there's more choice. We recognize, that word recognize, that there's more choice in how we relate to Vedana and how much we let it affect us, that is, make a determination of, our, of, of what happens next. And we start to see that Vedana is changing so fast that something that's pleasant one moment starts to be kind of neutral or even starts to get on our nerves. And vice versa, something that we think is unpleasant gradually becomes pleasant. At IMS, where I have sat so many long retreats, in the old days, in the good old days, you know how that is, the good old days. Where were those good old days? But anyway, and, and there used to be a, a, a system of radiators in the meditation hall. And in the early morning hour-long sit that we always did, they would ping, bang, ping, bang, ping, bang. And when you first start sitting that, you know, it's, it's a distraction. Like, boy, this is noisy. But over the weeks, you really get settled in and they actually act as a kind of anchoring of keeping you in the moment. And so one year... Um, Midway through uh, one of the three-month retreats, uh, Joseph announced that, you know, we're going to be replacing the radiators, so we won't have that noise anymore. And then during the Q&A that was afterwards, this woman holds up her hand. She says, well, before you do that, could you make a tape recording for us so we could all... <laughs> That's the fluidity of, of Vedana. And yet, and yet, we treat it as though what we're feeling right now is absolute, that it's going to go on, that, it, that, it's, uh, that it's of extraordinary importance, other than that it's just pleasant or just unpleasant. Now, sometimes in the pleasant or the unpleasant, there's a message, like some unpleasant taste could in, uh, in our mouth could indicate that something has gone sour, gone bad. So that's, there's a message in the unpleasantness. But think of the times in your life, just today, that you've had pleasant, unpleasant, and it's not been weighted down with any meaning or message. It's just pleasant or unpleasant. One way that equanimity develops is through knowing it's just pleasant or unpleasant and uh, not minding that we have a preference but we're not attached. We're not attached. So we can be going through something quite difficult, a leaving, an ending of a relationship, uh, uh, facing up to a medical problem. And there's lots of moments that are unpleasant. And if we're not careful, those unpleasant moments affect our mood. They even affect the story we have. 
we, we, we make the story uh, worse in a way than it is, or we, we lose the balance of the story because we're, the, the unpleasantness occurring time and again uh, really it shifts, it shifts the view. It shifts what's, uh, what's being seen. Uh, this has been proven by many, uh, you know, a, a PhD student in psychology and all these various ways showing how uh, we're unconsciously influenced by all sorts of things. Uh, one of the easiest examples of that is if you put a briefcase in a room and uh, you, just, you have this person say the same thing to the test person that's coming in, they will rate that person differently if the briefcase is over, and not there by the person, but it's over in the side. There's no reason even for them to have necessarily seen it. And yet they will rate the person with more, being more professional just because that briefcase was in the room. It's just amazing the nature of our mind, which is why we want to be very careful accepting it at face value in this way. So um, the the what determines our reactivity to the moment, whether or not we fall into desire or aversion in, well, in relation to hindrances, but also in, in, in relation to uh, the uh, clinging, just clinging or not clinging, is the way we are, we are perceiving and interpreting. So there's, a, there's, a, there's something that's perceived and again, the pleasant to unpleasant can change what's perceived. And then what's called mental impressions, that's our intention in relation to it, gets formed. And that's partially based on perception, partially it's based on other things. But this, uh, this Vedna is, can be a big part of both uh, what's perceived and our, our, our mental impressions, of which our intention are the most important part. So in my experience, there are three things that tend to... Uh, affect what we perceive and, and uh, how we then, uh, what relationship we have to it, whether we're reactive or responsive, that binary that I was stressing the other night in the first part of this talk. So one is our habitual view. So uh, we have a habitual view. Uh, we see a person that looks a certain way and we've got a habit, we've established a view of that person based on something that is that's just a very vague impression that's not reliable at all as to whom that person really is. Or it can be we have an experience and, um, uh, 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 with, uh, with something and we've had that experience before and it's formed our view, but that's, that's not really reality. So... Um, uh, uh, with trauma, there can be a sudden move around someone too close to you. They make a sudden move, and this trauma, this trauma response arises, just conditioned by by these experiences. Uh, 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 someone standing too close to you can create a, a reaction that they would never, because you know we all have our space, our desired distance. And again, that varies by culture and so forth and subcultures. But nonetheless, whatever your, whatever your distance is, if that gets violated, depending on a lot of things, you can, make up, um, you can make up a lot of stories. There was once a person on retreat that uh, disturbed two or three yogis, uh, although he, he was really a totally nice person and very friendly and all this, but he, his sense of what was appropriate closeness was way closer than anybody else. And so the people that were sharing the yogi job uh, came into interviews being disturbed by this. And, but then afterwards, they all ended up really liking this person a lot. And they were going, oh, that's just the way that person is. That's their habit. But they had made up whole stories that I would listen to and say, well, that may be true, but you know, why don't you just move back and so on. But the, the mind went to clinging. And not just clinging to having the experience clinging around the aversion, but a whole story was made up and clinging to that story. So you, you start to track this. So that's this habitual view. And then the, the, but the second part of that was it was unpleasant for the person being that close. So there was a habitual view in terms of like what's appropriateness and then the unpleasantness of that being violated, that's like fuel on the fire. And then the third, uh, the third part of this is that we tend to have stories 
We have a story about what's going on. We have a story about what's going on with us. And when uh, an event happens in the mind from any sense gate, seeing outside, having an internal thought, a smell, a taste, uh, witnessing something happen between two people, our story uh, affects whether, it's, whether we view it as pleasant or unpleasant. But the story and the pleasant and the unpleasant all get entwined. And we really, we fall into clinging. We, call into, we fall into clinging into view. We cling to our story. We will, we will make up a thing about aversion and we then look for proof of our aversion because once we feel something, you know, there's a perception bias. We want to notice things that prove us right. Again, from a survival point of view over the long term, not necessarily a bad thing, but in terms of moment-to-moment human interaction uh, in modern circumstances, maybe not so useful. And maybe a more neutral response to, instead of uh, going to pleasant, unpleasant, go, oh, this is, just, this is just unpleasant, just unpleasant, and invite, allow the possibility of it moving towards neutral. The story and our habit so perception will uh, will stop things from moving sometime. So we will keep we will what what might ordinarily it would change from pleasant to neutral. It gets stuck or unpleasant. It gets stuck there because we're renewing it with our belief system, our habitual view, or our story over and over again. And so Vedna Vedna becomes an important part of understanding this the the feelings. That, that is the emotions and the mind states of the third foundation of mindfulness. And then also, of course, plays a big role that we are understanding this when we're looking, at, we're looking at life from Dharma eyes, which is what we do in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. This looking at the Dhammas, looking at the way it is. So in one sense, this is, this is the spinal piece of you know, getting ourselves lined up to start doing investigation tomorrow. I'm going to do a number of little uh, interstitial breaks here uh, because of this topic being a little bit um, uh, asking you to think a lot. So uh, I collect lots of cartoons and poems, and this is a cartoon where uh, the ducks are lining themselves up in a row. They're getting all lined up. The ducks are getting lined up. And one says to the group, I fail to see why this is so much an achievement. <laughs> and um, uh, it is, we, we need to practice with a certain precision. You know, we need to like know how to practice. So we, we've learned how to be with the body. That was very important. We've learned how to feel the breath in the body and now how to be with just breath by itself. We, we've learned how to see when the, the, the mind's moved off the, the experience of breath and how to bring it back. That's called starting over. We've also learned that when you sit down to practice, that's who's there to practice. We don't look for a better version of ourselves, although some of you may still be doing that. But we don't look for a better version of ourselves to practice. The person who's there, the sleepy person, the restless person, the very rested person, the eager person, whomever sits down to meditate is who meditates. We don't wait for some, uh, some better version of ourselves to emerge. So we start where we are and then we start over when, when the mind wanders and we're lost. And we've learned to investigate. We've been investigating hindrances. We're going to further investigate. Uh, and and we, we use the anchor as our place to come back to when we're investigating to keep the attention stable and present. But as we learn more and more how to uh, stay present as we go to objects that are pulling us away, we will gradually move to what's called choiceless awareness. So that's, that's further along in our retreat where we're not we're not, we only use the, this anchor of the breath occasionally when we're doing Vipassana um, as, as needed. So, um, you know, to repeat again, now with this, this feeling tone, we often are in a reactive mind state. So we're reacting to pleasant and unpleasant, again, based on our habitual interpretation and on our immediate story, but we're reacting. We have a reactive relationship 
with our life moments. We have a react, we have a tendency of many moments, many moments of our life stream being ones where we're reactive. Recognition of that, step one. Then uh, realizing that, oh, part of that recognition is, I don't want to be reactive. You know, if, uh, if the person at the office I perceive not being respectful to me or not, I'm not included, I don't want to be reactive to all of that. I don't want to spend my life like a yo-yo at the end of a string or a puppet on this pleasant or unpleasant dancing around. I don't want my life to be like that. I want my life to be about my meeting life. This integrity that I maintain, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether I, I am, uh, like what's happening or don't like what's happening, or whether it's, it's wholesome or unwholesome what's happening, I want to be in my own integrity, my own mindful dignity based on my values as to how I move from reacting to responding. A reaction it sometimes looks the same as a response. So you see a child being uh, mistreated, you immediately respond. Because that child's being, you, you're protecting the child. You don't wait around. But if, you re, if it's from a reactiveness, the chances of you being skillful in the long term in terms of that child's well-being, like if you're interfering with a parent, which is a very tricky thing to do, which I've done more than once in my life, uh, it's, it, one wants to, wants to be coming from responsiveness rather than reactivity. Because in responsiveness, there's room for wisdom. We're not caught, we're not believing our own story. We're not attached to our view, but we know something seems wrong here. So we're responding to this is, something's off here. So moving from a reactive mind to a responsive mind allows us to move from, from suffering to non-suffering. Not necessarily to happiness in a feel-good way, but in a well-being sense of happiness. The uh, pomoja, this this uh, this sense of uh, of delight, that there is a there's a quiet delight in just being authentic, and that's that's uh, that's part of the immediate gains from practice is when we can have that kind of feeling. So we're moving from reactive to responsive. This is in the relative reality. And the absolute reality of the, what's called right view or wise view in the, uh, uh, of the Eightfold Path, we're looking at, 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 at all as non-self, that none of it belongs to us, as I was saying the other night. But in the meantime, here we are. We're in this flow of life, and this flow of one moment after another, the way water beads, the water's flowing down a stream. You know, it's not like every, every little uh, 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 drop of water is moving down on its own. It, they're moving down together. One's touching another, is touching another, is touching another. And our, our life is like that. And so uh, in one moment is affecting another in the flow of the life right now. It's going to be great when we're all fully enlightened. <laughs> but right now, we're either causing suffering to ourselves or another, or not causing suffering to ourselves or another. So the, in the relative, we are concerned with that consideration, just as in the long term, in the absolute, we're wanting to uproot the causes, the very, we're pulling the causes up, we're uprooting the innate causes of suffering. We're changing the nature of our being. And I actually believe that's possible. I'll let you know if that actually ever happens to me, and I'd ask that you do the same if it happens to you. Let me know. So I, but I do, I do have that kind of, of, of faith and the possibility of that. But the immediacy of this uh, supports that absolute. The more we are able to uh, be wholesome in our goals, skillful in our responses to those goals, rather than reactive in relation to goals of all kind, you know, making money to, uh, uh, you know, finding someone to be with, to raising your child, to uh, 
interacting in and uh, a social, the, the social political life of our culture of our time. To, uh, the, the more we are responsive, the more the more empowered we are, and the more we are uh, guarded against getting lost in our suffering and uh, causing the kind of suffering with so much regret that then all has to then be processed. So our feelings really matter. This third foundation, third establishment of mindfulness, this establishing the third way of establishing mindfulness, this mindfulness of mind, of the feeling and the mind states that arise, uh, really do matter in terms of... um, of, of wisdom, and of the terms of the heart, you know, and the the heart is a is a, a a big part of the concern here because ultimately, as the mind gets liberated, the heart gets free. It's a free heart, and you you're with a, this a heart awakening, uh, in its full sense. The Buddha says that kind of happiness that uh, a person that's truly happy in that way can never harm another. They just, it doesn't, it's not conceivable. You can think about that for yourself. So I want to read a poem that's not uh, a short poem, uh, but it's not too long, I don't think. Uh, And it's, uh, it captures this feeling on a human level, on a psychological level, on a gut level about why we would, why would, why we would care about this aspect of the Dhamma that this recognition of Vedna, this being able to stay in the body so we can recognize Vedna, so that we, that we recognize feeling tones, so that we can we see that uh, the, 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 the feeling tone is coming from a mind state of the third foundation that's not wholesome, and we realize, oh, do I, I may have a choice here. I don't have to go with this, this mind state. Even though I'm feeling it, I don't have to speak out of it. I don't have to act out of it. I can be available, and just maybe a more wholesome mind state will arise. Here and now, not some new, better version of me, but just because I'm awake, just because of sati, because mindfulness is here. Mindfulness that, that knows how to see, that knows how to see, that knows how to recognize, and that knows, uh, that remembers choice, that, that there's an intention of having choice. It's called Phone Call, and it's by Tony Hoagland, who... Uh, was a wonderful poet and very iconoclastic. And I teach a poetry day here every year, have done so for 17 or 18 years. And I've used lots of his poems and he died recently. And so uh, deep appreciation to you, Tony. May your journey be as you would have it. Phone call. Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. (laughs) That might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration, an immoderate description of the person who at that moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted paying for my therapy. What I meant was that my father was an enemy of my humanity. And what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people. One of them living deep inside of me like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells. The other standing in another time zone in a kitchen in Wyoming with bad knees and white hair sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window where just now the sun is going down and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. I don't think anyone in this room wants to scream forever. And there is choice. 
The scream can take so many forms, so many forms. It can be in relation to a certain situation in any relationship you're screaming. So you may change people, but that scream doesn't change. Uh, it may be in relation to family of origin. It may be in relation to social injustice. But the, the screaming as a way of relating, which is a reactionary way of relating, versus a responsive way. And so we have to, we have to remember it is incumbent as we, as we use the Dhamma, we're, we're seeing through this, this third foundation and fourth foundation with the Vedana, the help of the Vedana, oh, well, what's my choice here? What's, what's going on? So, okay, my, this, is, this sit's not like the sit I had early morning that was such a great sit, and I'm restless, and I'm kind of complaining and all of this, and, and I'm starting to make up a story about that. Do I really want to make up a story about it? Do I have to make an interpretation? Haven't I had enough sits that have been good or sort of good and some have been sort of bad or really awful? Do I really need to be making comment on, on the sits once again? Can I, do I have the choice of just being here and not going through this thing of judging me or, or making this story that I really can't do this or this isn't the right practice for me, all of this interpreting that we do? Could we just be? Uh, Tori has pointed us this morning to just be, just be. And so that as, as we start to see that um, we don't have to believe, we don't have to be, we don't have to act on what the immediacy of feeling is. And the empowerment to not have to do that is by being immediate to the feeling that we are there. We are present as the feeling tone is arising. As there, if there is a response to that, an emotional response, that, that we, we can see, oh, it's just an emotional response based because this was unpleasant. It was just unpleasant. I have found this so helpful in my life. So helpful on retreat and in daily life. And the great thing is that the more we practice, the more it takes hold. And it's one of the more of the linear things in practice, this recognition that it's just pleasant and unpleasant. So the more you practice, the more, the more wisdom you gain around it, the more choice you gain. Some things you, you practice more and it, doesn't, it seems like you go backwards rather than forwards in Dhamma. But this seems to be pretty like, a, like okay, if I put in more hours, I'm going to have more recognition and more choice. At least that's been my experience with myself and others. Um, there's a wonderful book on the Satipatthana Sutta called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization by the Venerable Analyo, who has taught the Satipatthana here a number of times and will continue to do so, we hope, for a number of years. And um, it's a great retreat to get to attend. Hard to get in, but great to attend when if you keep persisting, you will. And um, now I'm going to read just a couple of things that he says. According to the discourses, developing understanding and detachment in regard to the three feelings, that is Vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So according to the discourses, developing understanding and detachment in regard to these three feelings has the potential to lead to freedom from dukkha. Just focusing on Vedna. Since such understanding can be gained through the practice of satipatthana, contemplations of feelings is a meditation practice of considerable potential. I'll say. <laughs> so will you say? <laughs> this potential is based on the simple but ingenious method of directing awareness to the very first stages of the arising of likes and dislikes by clearly noting whether the present moment's experience is felt as pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Thus, to contemplate feelings means quite literally to know how one feels. And this with such immediacy that the light, like a flashlight or a candle, that the light of awareness is present before the onset of reactions, projections, or justification in regards to how one feels. 
Undertaken in this way, contemplation of feelings will reveal the surprising degree to which one's attitudes and reactions are based on this initial effective input provided by feelings. The systematic development of such immediate knowing will also strengthen one's more intuitive modes of apperception in the sense of the ability to get a feel for a situation or a feel for another person. This ability offers additional helpful this this ability offers a helpful additional source of information in everyday life. So see, I wasn't making this up. <laughs> um, so uh, um, it's just pleasant. It's just unpleasant. That word "just" in front is the freedom. And we we start it uh, as a kind of practice, and it's not really so true. In reality, it's an aspiration, but in time, yeah, it's just pleasant. It's just unpleasant. So, as I mentioned the other night, the last of the dhammas that's understood in the fourth foundation of mindfulness are the Four Noble Truths. And I want to have the last part of the talk this evening, the exploration, as I call them, uh, uh, that we're doing together, to be focused on the second of the third of the noble truths, and then the third of the noble truths. I'm sorry, the fourth. I've got this all wrong. Sorry, I was I got to thinking about something differently in the middle of that. My fault. Sometimes I do that. So, um, you know, so let's start with the first noble truth that there is dukkha. There is suffering. There is unsatisfactoriness to our experience so often. It's not all dukkha. It's not all unsatisfactory. But it's so woven in to our experience. And it's dukkha. It's it's suffering. It's unsatisfactory. It's unreliable. Um, uh, It's not lasting. All of those kinds of things. It's always changing. So the three kinds of dukkha that we experience are from the sense bases, which are unpleasant, and that can include the emotions. So it's physically painful or, or, or disquieting or unnerving or fearful, or it's mentally painful or unnerving or fearful. Uh, some sort of uh, uh, unpleasantness around, around what happens through our sense experience. The second kind of dukkha is uh, this viparanama dukkha, which is the fact that everything's constantly changing. So uh, that's unnerving. And the more clearly we see that, at first it can be very unnerving, but then eventually, seeing that everything's always changing, it really reduces the incentive to try to cling because it doesn't work out. We realize that's not a very wise strategy since everything's changing. And I really know now, I've had the insight, not the mental intellectual agreement, but I actually have felt the fact that everything's changing. I've had an insight about it. So that can turn into positive, but it's, but in, in the untrained mind, it's dukkha, and we don't even notice it. So there's a kind of disappointment of fatigue and irritation, because we've got to go brush our teeth again, wash the dishes again, that you might notice <laughs> directly. But all of these little things, you know, like wash the clothes, you know, get to work, be in traffic, you know, just, so just little small things. And then, of course, huge things around you were healthy. Now you're not healthy. You liked your job. Now you don't like your job, on and on. And then the third kind of dukkha is Sankara dukkha, where um, uh, we can't really find a basis of identity. Uh, there's, there's, there's just not a, a final basis, and that can be very unnerving and sometimes we have this and not realize we're having it just lay people a lot of lay people suffer from that when i say lay i mean untrained mind non non going through this kind of uh, process of learning <coughs> and so that's dukkha do you know anybody that doesn't experience dukkha So why do we object to it so much? If everybody experiences it, why do we feel so picked on or so 
uh, uh, ridden with it. Why is it not just dukkha, the way unpleasant is just unpleasant? It's because it's so close to our identity. And we're identifying at the wrong level in the wrong way. And that's why the absolute, this moving, moving, moving to seeing that, that, that this is not me, not mine, that things we think are me and mine are not really me and mine. That's why that's so important. And that's part of what we do in this investigation that we're opening more fully to tomorrow. We gradually become more and more interested in is this me or not me? And um, so that's, that's why um, uh, we, we take it so personally, this dukkha, rather than treating it as the nature of this realm. But then, uh, who is suffering? You know, when we have this suffering of whether it's over a broken heart or uh, uh, a bad disease or just, you know, uh, 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 hurt feelings or being too tired, overworked. Who suffers? Who suffers? Who in you suffers? Who in you suffers? Just thinking about it for a moment. You all know Dukkha. Who in you is suffering? There's many ways to answer that question, many ways to divide it. And tonight I want to divide it in a particular way um, between that and us, which is uh, the clinging mind, which I'm going to also refer to as the clinging mind that has neurotic tendencies. And I'm not using that as a psychologist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm using it in the great way that that uh, our culture has taken all psychological language and made it everyday language, taking away most of its meaning. <laughs> but um, that there is a, there's a reactivity. By what I mean to that is that we get reactive rather than just be with the suffering, or, or again, trying to relieve the suffering in what way we can with wisdom and compassion, but we get reactive to it. We have a story and we're indignant and our, we're carried away in the Vedna of the unpleasant and the aversion and so forth. So that's one, that's one aspect of ourself. That experience is suffering. It's not so wise because it's just reactive. It, it doesn't weigh, it doesn't put in perspective. It actually oftentimes forgets to bring any compassion. We'll forget to be kind to ourselves. We'll, we'll, we'll forget that we're not perfect. We're not supposed to be perfect. We forget so we can be so harsh with ourselves when there is this kind of clinging, reactive, aversive, kind of neurotic suffering where it's, oh, how could this happen to me in a way? When, of course, it's happening to everybody. And that's one kind. The other kind, for this, uh, this as an artifice tonight so we can see something, is that in us which is that in us which is innocent. And I would suggest to you that is that which is innocent in you, being with dukkha, that will really free you. And that is which is innocent in you will be able to see the second noble truth and respond to the instruction of the second noble truth to release that which is the cause of suffering which is tanha, this thirst, this clinging, grasping and all. That it is our innocence in us that actually stands before, that carries, Ajahn Sumedho likens it to standing under a waterfall. This wonderful wise woman named Helen Luke, who is now dead, but wonderful, wonderful wise woman, she refers to it as carrying a load like a wagon. This fairy, this... uh, uh, the Latin of it, to carry, to bear, like a load. That each of us, and by being in this realm, that is our, that is our primary karma. Before any of the specifics happens, we're, uh, the karma of being born in this realm with its pleasant and unpleasant and its ever-changing conditions and so forth, and its briefness and so forth. So, can you... Uh, Sitting here tonight, imagine, open just to the possibility that it might be that which is most innocent in your heart that carries the load, that will know, that will open to the truth of dukkha.
some of us can say, um, uh, you know, I'm not so innocent anymore. I've made my share of mistakes and so many mistakes have been made upon me. I don't feel innocent. I've had that response a lot from people. And that isn't uh, my perception. My perception is that innocence, this, this genuine innocence, is of two types. A naive innocence, which children have, at least some children. I don't think all children necessarily have that kind of innocence. That It's like they were born with, to carry more of the burden sooner. But, um, but children uh, can have a kind of naive innocence. And some people can go their whole life and have that kind of naive innocence where they don't really think there's any, that there's really any ill intent really in the world so much, at least towards them. I have one friend who's amazingly innocent in her 40s. It's amazing to me. I, it's like, you know, this should be studied or something because her life has unfolded so that she's not gotten bruised, burned, dismissed, you know, betrayed. I can't explain it. <laughs> it just it shows that you know the 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 exception points that there is a rule. <laughs> it's that kind of a thing. But for most of us, as we've become as old as we are in this room, and there's a huge difference in age in this room. But even those of you in your twenties, maybe you feel completely naive, innocent, or maybe you feel partially naive, innocent. But if if you if you don't feel naive, innocent anymore. There is another kind of innocence that's there in your heart called experienced innocence in my, in my language of this, that it is, it is no longer naive. It is, it is a kind of mindful innocence where that is inherent in our, in our character, every character. It's, it's, it comes from this emptiness. It comes from this, uh, this, uh, uh, the, this uh, Buddha nature which we, we can all start to feel on retreat. And it's that Buddha nature, seeing innocence, it, when, when, we, when we're with our dukkha, on, uh, sitting here on retreat, with that point of view, wishing that part of our heart to be present, that part of our heart doesn't have all this big agenda for ourselves. It's not, a, it's not self-referenced that way, this, this, this kind of, uh, uh, true, genuine interest, this uh, innocence, this authentic innocence. It's got a different quality to it. And uh, I, I have uh, I found this so uh, revealing in my own life. And uh, so all these years, I more and more have started to, in, in the one-on-one practice discussions and in now more and more in Dharma talks, to start to bring this up. So that, that innocence... That innocence, your innocence, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody in this room knows what I'm talking about. This kind of innocence, this goodness of your heart, this, this time, there's these times when there is no ill will in you whatsoever. You know what I'm talking about. You may be busily denying it. Why does he say that? Not me, I don't know. You do know. You do know. Those moments when you have generous thoughts, those moments when you stop because somebody needs to get in front of you or you let someone in the door or you you just smile at someone, you appreciate the child, you appreciate nature. You're in gratitude because people are working very hard on a retreat to support your retreat. And there just rises this gratitude. I was... um, I was, um, in January of this past year, I had thought I was sick with the flu, which I may or may not have been, but I was diagnosed that way on the phone, and I was treating myself as though I had the flu, and I suddenly developed a huge abdomen pain, and it grew and grew, and over 14 hours, I took it as my object of meditation. As it turned out, what was actually happening was my appendix was bursting over a 14-hour period. And I really desperately needed to be in the emergency room. But I got so abs- uh, uh, absorbed in the practice the way I was doing it that I lost any kind of reflective wisdom. So in the middle of all of this, 
It was really a horrible experience and also a, 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 a horrible experience psychologically, but spiritually it was kind of an amazing experience. And just a small example of that is like, oh, I don't know how many hours in, maybe six or seven hours in, I realized that this amount of pain, I was in a state of someone who had been tortured. I would have signed anything to have release. I would have said anything. I had no agency left whatsoever. And I was feeling this, and I recognized that it's like, oh, this is like torture out of nowhere. Because I had just been with the object, suddenly this thought appeared all on its own, an insight, a wisdom thought. I was going, oh, this is, this is what the torturers are after. And when they succeed, this is the feeling that they've been after. And in the midst of this uh, uh, pain that was just like blasting me apart, all of a sudden my heart burst open for all the people who were being tortured right now, all the people who had been tortured, all the people who would be tortured. My heart just burst open. And it was like, <laughs> it was, where did that come from? And then right back to the pain. But that moment, that was, that was innocence meeting suffering. Do you get the feel for it? Will you give yourself the chance for this to be true for you? Will you practice tomorrow in your investigation? Will you practice in a way where you give yourself this benefit of the doubt that there is that in you which is not defined by clinging at all? That it has nothing to do with clinging. There is this other part, this reactive mind based on the maiden, everything I spent all that time doing, that it's very involved. And lots of times that's who's going to be there with your experience. That's okay. You're just practicing. You're just seeing. But to be open that this, that your heart would be available, that you would actually experience a moment of your experience in this kind of innocence. That it's not, it's not got agenda. It's not wanting anything. It's not trying to get better to improve. This practice is not a self-improvement practice. There's huge self-improvement happens, but it's not a self-improvement practice. It's about transformation. It's about freeing the heart in this way. And so this is the, this is the invitation I would like to leave you with as this, this openness to, to your heart space and practicing in this way. That's, that's the invitation. What does it look like? It doesn't look like anything. You just keep this in consideration sometime. When you're, when you're having your, your stories or your reaction or your grumblings or whatever, or you're, you're judging or you're comparing or you're fixing, just go, oh, could I just drop in my heart space and have the same experience but just from my heart space? And let's see what it's like. What happens? What does this heart know in this way? This is the invitation, a different way to go through the Satipatthana. So let's close our eyes. Thank you for your kind attention and uh, for your courage. I felt like you stayed with me. And that takes courage because it's unknown territory. So thank you very much for that. Our walking practice, and then we'll be back for the last formal sit of the evening. And uh, some of you may want to do what you did last night or part of it or all of it, or you didn't do it last night, but you want to come back in here later on and sit. 
It's all up to what seems wise to you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.